What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. Happy holidays. Excited to jump into why asset location strategy really matters for physicians. And I'm not just talking about the allocation portion. I'll go into the difference between the two, but we're going to talk all about asset location. Now, before we jump in, this is a really important disclaimer to make sure we all get on the same footing here. This is for educational purposes only. This is not specific financial planning or investment advice. Please don't take any action and think anything is a recommendation in this entire show. It's, again, for fun. And yes, this is a sick, twisted way of saying this is fun, but finance should be fun. Your investments also should be boring, like watching paint dry, but I digress. All right. I also want to call attention to a awesome podcast by my good friend, Dr. David Juginas called the Doctors Unbound Podcast. I want you guys to check out the show. He's got an amazing lineup of shows that he's done. Fascinating interviews that share how physicians are making an impact outside of the hospital or clinic, whether it's founding a healthcare tech company, running for public office, or starting a nonprofit. Tune in to Doctors Unbound podcast for weekly stories that'll uplift and inspire you. And if you're interested in financial literacy and independence, like I know you are because you listen to the Financial Residency Podcast, Dr. Dave regularly covers these topics as he and his family are on their own journey of achieving financial independence with short-term rentals. Subscribe to Doctors Unbound Podcast. It's free, just this podcast, found anywhere where all the podcasts are listed. He's also the co-founder of the Doctor Podcast Network with me. Really excited. Want to draw some attention to a show because I think it's fantastic. All right, let's jump into the show. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back. When you are a high income earner, it's important to understand the difference between an asset location strategy and an asset allocation strategy. And I'm going to talk about the two here, and I'm probably honestly going to do a whole show on asset allocation, but most people don't talk a lot about asset location I don't think you should be off going and complicating your finances and your investments a ton, but I think this is good food for thought and things to think of later on as you progress down your investing career. Now, at what threshold do you start looking at location versus just the simple allocation and trying to invest is really going to be up to you and depending on you. But let's just say that it's at least north of half a million dollars of investable assets and it's nothing you should be like crazy concerned with in the short term but it is critical for you to understand how this all relates, which is why we're here talking about asset location. Asset allocation is really the way that you diversify your investments, typically represented by a percentage based on the different asset classes in your portfolio. It sounds like a mouthful, but let's make this easy, right? For example, if you had $200,000 in stocks and you had, let's say, $300,000 in bonds, your asset allocation would be 40% stocks, right? 200K divided by 500K and 60% in bonds, 300,000 divided by 500,000. So this would be commonly referred to as you would be in a 40% stock, 60% bond allocation. Now, when you're younger, you will typically see that you're going to be more aggressive in your asset allocation, meaning you're going to hold more growth oriented investments like stocks in a higher percentage than you would with bonds. Now, as you near retirement, your asset allocation, I'm actually emphasizing this on purpose, would be typically become more conservative and may switch you into a higher percentage of bonds than you would in stocks. 
the asset allocation is based on your goals, like your time horizon, your risk tolerance, bunch of things, right? Your asset location strategy, on the other hand, is where you would hold a specific investment. You can hold investments into things like pre-tax retirement accounts. There could be post-tax retirement accounts. Could be taxable accounts, right? A taxable brokerage account. The key is with your asset location strategy is understanding how different investments are taxed and what that would actually mean for your tax bill when you hold them into these different accounts that are all available to you. Now, bonds are taxed differently than stocks, which are then taxed differently than REITs or REIT. Some of you actually say the whole acronym out, but they're REITs. And by having a tax efficient asset location strategy, you can then invest these assets into these different vehicles to save you the most on your taxes. Again, I don't want you to overcomplicate things a ton. If you've got very little investable assets and you're just starting out your career, this is something that I want you to think about, but not necessarily need to truly implement. Now, how are different asset classes taxed, right? Coming up with this good asset location strategy is going to start with understanding how the asset classes are taxed, how short-term capital gains work, how long-term capital gains worked, right? So short-term capital gains are taxed at your normal ordinary income marginal tax rate. And again, it's considered short-term if you sold that asset after holding it for one year or less. So let's say that you're in the 35% marginal tax bracket and you hold a stock for less than a year and you sell it for a gain, which is awesome, right? You made some money, but unfortunately you are now paying a 35% tax on that gain. It is considered ordinary income. And the same goes honestly for most other assets, including bonds or REITs or even your personal residence. There's a a limit to where you can basically not have tax due and then you will eventually pay Uncle Sam if you made a boatload of money on your personal residence. Now, long-term capital gains are taxed more favorably. And long-term capital gains are if you were to buy an asset, you hold it more than a year, and then you sell it. And there's three currently, I should say, with Biden potentially changing everything that we're going to be looking at. I think he's got a lot with COVID on his plate, but there's been some talk with changing capital gains and potentially getting rid of it. But right now there are three long-term capital gain tax rates. So I'm going to go with what is currently here. But for those not listening in real time and hello, 2022, right? I have no idea when you're listening, but this is what is current as of December in 2020, that there is a 0%, a 15% and a 20% tax rate or tax bracket. And this is what you will pay the tax rate for the long-term capital gains depending on which marginal tax bracket you're in, as well as your filing status. So it can depend on how much your marginal rate is, as well as if you're single or married. That will determine which of those three rates you will be essentially taxed at for any asset that you hold longer than one year. So I want to break up just stocks and bonds really quick and how those are taxed. Stocks or mutual funds holding stocks and passive index funds tracking a stock index can be taxed in a multitude of ways. First, your stocks are typically going to pay dividends on a semi-regular basis. When a stock pays a dividend, that dividend is either going to be qualified or non-qualified. You're going to pay tax on qualified dividends at the more favorable long-term capital gain rate. Now, taxes on non-qualified dividends are going to be at your normal ordinary income marginal tax rate. It's a mouthful. It's also a bummer. Just realize that. 
So you're also going to be taxes related to when you sell the stocks, right? If you were to sell a stock within a year, you're going to sell for a gain. You're going to pay that ordinary income tax on the gain. Now, if you hold the stock for longer than a year and you sell it for a gain, you will pay again at that more favorable long-term capital gains tax rate on the gain specifically. And just like stocks, bonds are going to be taxed in a ton of different ways as well. Bonds generate regular cash flow by paying the bondholder interest. And interest is considered ordinary income. Bummer, because we know it's ordinary income. It's at the marginal tax rate. It's your highest tax rate, aka bummer. So when you're going to receive the interest from that bond, you're going to pay taxes on the interest at your, again, your ordinary marginal income tax rate. Whenever I say that long thing, just realize that's a bummer. You can also sell bonds for a capital gain or loss, just like stocks, right? If you own a bond for the short-term gain, right, less than a year, you're going to owe tax at your ordinary income rate. If you own that bond for longer than a year, you're going to have the more favorable long-term capital gains rates. Now, bonds are a bit more nuanced than that because there are different types of bonds out there compared to the stocks. So it's a little bit different. Right. So if you, let's say, had a governmental bond and that was taxed and like they paid interest and that is going to be taxed at the federal level, but it actually won't be taxed at your state and local levels. Whereas muni bonds or municipal bonds, muni for short, are not taxed at the federal, state or even local level as long as you reside in the state at which that muni bond was actually issued, which is really interesting. If I'm in California, I buy a California muni bond, I actually don't owe federal, state, or local tax on it. Now, the returns are going to be a lot lower potentially, and there's some inherent risks. But again, food for thought, and I'm just explaining as we go through these. But generally speaking, let's just equate bond in interest as taxed as ordinary income. And this is going to actually play into how you select your asset location strategy. So the question that comes to my mind now is what's the difference between tax efficient and tax inefficient assets? Now, when I'm thinking about an asset location strategy, it's important to understand, I think, the difference between those two things. So if an investment is to be considered tax efficient, it's not going to generate ordinary taxable income on a regular basis, right? So stocks that are held long term, and let's say they're in a passive index fund, like the S&P 500 index fund, again, not investment advice. Remember the disclaimer in the beginning, not investment advice, just use an example. That is considered a tax-efficient investment. You know, these index funds typically pay dividends on a quarterly basis, and these dividends are usually considered qualified dividends. If a dividend is qualified, that means you're going to pay tax on the dividend at that more favorable long-term capital gain rate. Remember? I know it's a lot. We're getting through it. Stocks that are held for a long-term are considered tax-efficient because when you sell that long-term asset, you're paying that long-term capital gain rate. You notice how on both those situations, you're not paying at your ordinary income tax rate, right? That's a good thing. I didn't say that long, complicated thing, right? Any tax inefficient investment is the bummer, right? It's one that you're going to be paying taxes at your ordinary marginal income tax rate, the big bummer one, right? And examples of this would include bonds or actively traded funds or high volume mutual funds or REITs. And bonds are considered tax inefficient because they pay interest on that annual basis. And that interested, remember, is considered ordinary income. So as a physician, the interest that you're going to earn with bonds is going to be taxed at your marginal tax rate. 
and you're in a high marginal tax bracket because you're a physician or married to a physician, then you will be paying a high rate on your bond interest and you're going to be paying that annually. Mutual funds, it might have caught some of your attention or perked your ears up or your attention up. When they're traded frequently, they're going to generate a ton of short-term capital gains or losses because the fund isn't holding those assets for a longer period of time, right? They're holding it less than a year and those capital gains are going to be taxed at your ordinary income rate. So if the mutual fund is trading a bunch, you're likely going to be paying more in tax than you really need to. And REITs, which is our exposure to real estate usually, they're going to pay dividends to their unit holders. And those are considered tax inefficient because those dividends are going to be considered ordinary income, which again, you're paying at that ordinary marginal tax income rate. And that is against a bummer. So where you hold an asset and invest it is going to matter a lot about when we're concerning, I should say, tax efficiency. And you can invest into pre-tax retirement accounts right? Your traditional IRAs, your 401ks, your 403b from a traditional sense. You can invest in post-tax retirement accounts. This would be like your Roth 403b or your Roth IRA. You can invest in a taxable brokerage account. And then there's other non-retirement tax vehicles like holding government bonds, let's say. But each of those will have its advantage and disadvantage when it comes to investing efficiently from a tax perspective. And again, I don't want you to create a whole bunch of work for yourselves when there's very little benefit from a tax perspective and the tax dog shouldn't wag the investment return or simplicity or anything tail, if you will. It just should be acknowledged and understood as you're building out your portfolios. That's why this whole show exists. Now, when you invest in a pre-tax retirement account, you are deferring paying taxes on the income until you withdraw the money at a later date. That in turn then decreases your current taxable income and is honestly a great way for high income earning physicians. All of you are considered high income earning in the eyes of the IRS, by the way, newsflash. And that really is gonna help reduce your current year taxes. Now, another advantage would be that investing your pre-tax accounts, when you trade in them, you're not gonna pay any taxes on the gains, the dividends or the interest, all that stuff I was just talking about. And that's really why I was giving this preface to how this stuff works. And you might be going, okay, that makes sense. But what does that mean for my asset location strategy? So remember, tax inefficient assets are ones where you pay the ordinary income tax on a regular basis due to that regular stream of income that's coming in, like the bonds paying interest. And this makes a bond a really good investment to hold in a pre-tax retirement account since bonds generate interest every year you would normally have to pay tax on that interest at your normal ordinary income tax rate. But if the bonds are in your pre-tax retirement account, you don't pay tax on the annual interest until you withdraw the money upon retirement. And the same goes for when you sell the bond before retirement. If you sell it and you sell it for a gain, you don't have to pay the tax on the gain again until you withdraw the money in retirement. So you might be thinking, well, why not invest stocks in my pre-retirement account? Okay, nothing's absolute by any means when it comes to investing. And again, I wouldn't just shove all your bonds into a tax-deferred account. But these, again, are options and things I want you to think about. But having stocks in your pre-retirement account from a tax perspective could also be a good idea. But I'm purely thinking about it from a pure tax efficiency perspective. Bonds are generally better to hold in your pre-tax accounts. Your ordinary income tax rate is likely to be higher than your capital gain rate. 
And as we've seen, bond interest is taxed at that ordinary income rate and stock dividends, right, which are paid quarterly that we're talking about that are qualified are going to be taxed at that long-term capital gain rate. So I'd rather not be paying the highest tax rate. I'd much rather be paying the lowest tax rate. Again, we're talking about efficiency from a tax perspective. Now, the money that is invested in your taxable brokerage account has already been taxed once, right? You earn that money when you got a paycheck or you've already paid taxes on that 1099 income that you got from working locums or whatever it may be. And this is why I think it's important to invest in a tax efficient manner within your taxable accounts, because if you invest in bonds in a taxable account, you're going to be paying that ordinary income, right? That annual interest that's coming in. And that's not very tax efficient, right? Investing stocks into your taxable account is more efficient. Income that comes from your stocks, again, is dividends, typically qualified dividends. And that means that you're only paying tax at the more favorable long-term capital gains rate. Now there's after-tax retirement accounts. You're like, what about this whole Roth IRA or Roth 403B or 401k? Honestly, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Because the dollars you're putting into the Roth IRA have already been taxed. They were taxed in the current year. You got no tax benefit on those. There's no tax on the contributions or the gains when you pull the money out at retirement. I should blanket the statement by saying there's no one size fits all strategy here. Bonds could do better in a Roth than your taxable account because you'll never owe taxes on the interest. But stocks are also going to do well in the Roth because the dividends won't be taxed. Any capital gain that you were to achieve in the Roth account just simply won't be taxed because you've already paid the tax on the money that's invested and it's going to come out tax-free. So really, it's tax-efficient with both asset classes. However, most of you won't actually be able to invest into a Roth account or just a very minimal amount by doing the backdoor Roth conversions. And there's a lot of math that goes into, do you pay the tax now or pay the tax later? My crystal ball is broken on what the tax rates are going to look like 40, 50, 60 years from now. And if you know that, great, contact me. But in reality, we don't know. So we do what's best with the information given. And that's why I don't let this tax tail wag the dog of how we're actually going to invest our money. But I want to make sure I have the lens correct that I'm always thinking about. Should I invest it here or there if I've got the funds? Again, this makes you look at your investments from a household perspective. And there's a whole bunch of other nuances that I will probably discuss in a different show talking about asset allocations. Because if you invest too much in stock in one account and too much in bonds in another one, even though as your household might look good from that view, you might look at it and say we had a downturn in the market like we did in March of 2020 and it was down 30% in the month. You might go, oh, that is way too much. This account's doing horrible. Let me sell and put it in that bond fund that I have over there. All of a sudden, everything you just thought of and had prepped for went out the door because you made that knee-jerk reaction. We don't want that to happen. But I always like giving examples. And I'm going to give you a heads up because... I think I want to talk a little math for a second. Give me a few minutes to talk a little math. We'll get on with the the show after that. But I think it's going to be pretty helpful to have an example. So let's say that we have a single physician and they've got a traditional IRA with $100,000 invested. Now, let's also keep in mind that this is entertainment and educational purposes only. I'm not telling you to make this investment. I'm using it as an example. And let's say that that investment was in the total stock market index fund. And $60,000 of that would be made up of, let's say it's her contributions. And that would mean that she's got $40,000 of gains. Awesome, right? And let's say she withdraws 
all $100,000. Well, she's going to owe ordinary income on all $100,000 because she'd never been taxed on that money. And again, I'll use 2020 marginal tax rates. So anyone listening in the future, I apologize, but it is what it is. So as of right now, using the 2020 marginal tax rates, she's going to pay about $18,000 and I'm ignoring kind of deductions and credits in this. And that would leave her with about $82,000. This is again, very rough math. I'm doing this in my head on the fly. On the other hand, if she was to invest $100,000, let's say in the taxable brokerage account. And again, I'm not saying to invest one over the other, just trying to give you an example. And with that same understanding that let's say it was 60,000 of contributions and 40,000 of gains, she would only owe tax on the $40,000 of gains. And again, let's assume like in the 24% bracket, her capital gains rate would be 15%. So she would pay $40,000 times 15% or $6,000. And that would leave her with $94,000 instead of 82,000 in that piece. But in that second scenario, I do have to take consideration into the tax she paid on the 60,000 of contributions that initially went into her taxable account. Because remember, the money was already taxed, then we invested it into that taxable account. Now, using the same 2020 marginal tax rates, she would have paid about $9,000 in tax on the $60,000. So that would bring her total up to about 15,000, right? Hopefully you followed me there. If not, I apologize. But to sum it up, that 15,000 would mean that she'd be leaving with a total of $85,000. So in summary, if you didn't follow all the math, if basically you removed all the money from the traditional IRA, you were left with $82,000 left over after paying all the tax. If you've invested all in the taxable account in a tax efficient manner and you had long-term capital gains, you'd be left with $85,000. So there's about a $3,000 difference on that $100,000 example. Now, I gave you a very simplified example. There's so many factors that go into an asset location strategy. I just wanted to try to break it down with some numbers to show how this stuff works. Now there's one big monkey wrench that we're tossing in here. And it's really, it's called the net investment income tax. Yay, another tax. And this is really an additional 3.8% tax on your investment income. If your modified adjusted gross income is over $200,000 for single, uh, filers and $250,000 for a married filing joint. So when your income is over this amount, so let's say you are uh, married, you've got kids, you're an anesthesiologist and you make $350,000, you will be over this amount. Therefore, you will owe a 3.8% tax on the lesser of your net investment income or the excess over your modified adjusted gross income threshold. Now, fun fact, because I always like fun facts, this suggests that in the tax code, right, because of how this came about and what this is actually used for, that it's to fund Medicare, but the revenue raised by this tax, because it came in with the Affordable Care Act, but as the revenue is raised and comes in that 3.8% or the lesser of, it just goes into our nation's general fund. So it was put in as, hey, this is going to help pay for Medicare, but we haven't Actually, we can't really audit that because it doesn't go into a separate fund. It goes into just our general fund as a nation. Now, the IRS defines investment income. I think this is very important as interest, dividends, capital gains, rental income, royalty income, and non-qualified annuities. We don't really talk about annuities on the show. Not going to honestly be good for most of you. 
but we have talked about the majority of those other ones. And so the implication for all of you and as physicians or married to physicians is that you're probably going to be above those thresholds. Then you're going to owe a 3.8% tax on that investment income. And this is where the asset location could help. Investing in pre-tax retirement accounts, whether it's stocks or bonds, is going to shield some of that income from these investments from that net investment income tax during the working years. All right. Now, when you withdraw the funds of our retirement, there's a good chance you're withdrawing less, but we won't know. And that could change. And that's 30, 40, 50 years down the road. We just don't know how that's going to actually look into the future. Some of you have probably thought this whole time, well, what about the backdoor Roth? And the backdoor Roth should probably talk about just briefly here is basically a method of converting your pre-tax investments into after-tax investments in a Roth IRA. And it sounds pretty straightforward, but the tax implications aren't actually that straightforward. And really the backdoor Roth is a tax planning strategy. Most of you think of it as an investment strategy, but in reality, it's a tax strategy. The purpose is to allow you as high income earners who normally can't put money into a Roth IRA directly a way to get money into a Roth IRA. Technically, it's legal. Everyone thought it was skirting the rules, but the IRS has come out and said, hey, we're aware of it. We're cool with it. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Just give us our money, basically. But to accomplish the backdoor Roth, you save money into the traditional IRA. You do this with your pre-taxed funds, but they're not pre-taxed because you're likely over the threshold. It's then converted into a Roth IRA, and you do this through your custodian who holds your accounts. Now, you're going to pay taxes on the contributions and any growth, but there shouldn't be any growth because you did it in the same year. And then after the conversion, those funds now are in a Roth IRA, which grow tax-free, which is fun. We like that. Now, one thing that most, no one for some reason talks about, I just want to throw it out here, is that once you convert the money, there's a new distribution rule that's added to those converted funds. Now, most of you haven't heard of it, or it doesn't really apply to you, but it could later on down the road. And for those that are maybe in their later stages of their career, this could absolutely matter. And really the new distribution rule, it's a five-year rule that then places additional penalties on distributions. If you take it within five years of converting, and there's very limited exceptions to that. But once you're in retirement, the Roth IRA is the only retirement account that does not have RMDs or required minimum distributions. Think of RMDs as the IRS's way of saying, and usually it's your age, it used to be 70 and a half, it's now 72. By this age, we don't care what you're doing, give us our money, right? Uncle Sam, in the traditional sense, in your traditional IRAs, I should say, has invested alongside you this entire time. They said, hey, Jane or Bob, don't worry about the tax. We're gonna give give you the tax break this year, Invest your money, save for your own retirement. But at some point, the the game stops. And they say, okay, you've invested for long enough. You're 72 now. We want our money. And there's a calculation on what you're required to take out, required minimum distribution, the required amount that you have to take out. Because Uncle Sam says, we've invested alongside you enough. We want our money. Now, getting money into the Roth IRA, like we've talked about, is a way that it kind of helps diversify the one of the types of accounts you can pull from in retirement and creates additional withdrawal strategies. And that is how it impacts not only your asset location, 
and your asset allocation. Roth IRAs are very cool accounts. And that's why we're so in favor of doing this backdoor Roth and getting what we can in, but also not having to pay excess amount of tax now. So it's a delicate balance. And I want you guys to take away that there's a lot of ways to do this and everyone's situation is different. So please don't just think because I'm talking about one way or I've mentioned another way on the show or you've read it somewhere in, on a book or online in a blog, everything is specific to you, your situation, your income, your expenses, your savings rate, all that stuff. So I think we've talked a, a lot about asset location and I will probably do a whole show on asset allocation, but both of those are really important aspects to your investment portfolio. The asset allocation is going to help you diversify your investments, while the asset location will help you invest as tax efficiently as you possibly can. Remember, every situation is different, right? We have to look at your risk tolerance, your investing time horizon, lots of things that are going to factor in this. But I, I want to wrap it up with holding tax efficient assets like stocks and index funds in taxable accounts is wise and tax inefficient assets like bonds could go into your pre-tax accounts. Just don't forget to consider how that net investment income tax is going to play into your situation as well as your overall household investing strategy. But I think knowing the basics on how to invest tax efficiently could save you a lot of money, potentially tens of thousands of dollars in unnecessary taxes, but it could create additional work. And I want you to understand that it's great to understand. This is really good knowledge. It might not be ready for you to implement just yet. Maybe you are, maybe you're further along, maybe you have a bunch of assets and this is a wake-up call, which is great. But this is really to get you guys thinking that there's two different types as location and allocation with your assets and your investment strategy. So hopefully this was helpful. I appreciate you guys sticking around, learning this stuff. I know this is a little bit more in depth than I usually get. I feel like there's some really good topics I just haven't covered in enough depth. This was one of them. And I think I'm going to do a whole asset allocation show. If that's of interest to you guys, let me know. I'm pretty sure I'll do one. But if it seems like it might not be as helpful, because we don't really get a lot of questions on it. We've gotten a lot of tax questions recently. So I feel like this was a really good show for you guys. But if there's something else that you guys want to hear, please email me. Ryan at financialresidency.com. If you have questions that you would really like me to answer, not just like, hey, here's a show topic or a show idea, please go to financialresidency.com slash question and record your question. That way I can make sure I get it on air. We're going to be doing these curbside consults. It's something I'm, I'm going to do a lot more of because just a lot of questions have been coming in. I'm going to make sure I answer your questions. If you've sent in a question, let's say, longer than three months ago or four months ago, and I, for some reason, haven't answered that on air and you left a voicemail, please go back and leave another one. That was a mistake. If that's the case, I'm pretty sure we've answered lots of stuff, but recently in the past, say 90 so or days last, you know, Q3, Q4 of 2020, lots of questions have come in and I want to do more shows around answering your questions because I know that's how you guys are learning and implement this and see what other people are thinking and realizing you're not alone. If you have a question, there's 5,000 people listening to the show right now. Their odds are is dozens of them, if not hundreds of them, potentially even thousands. But let's just say hundreds of them probably have the same question and we can all learn together. So please call it in. I'll answer it on air. Financialresidency.com slash question. 
So remember, this is entertainment purposes only. It's not investment advice. You're going to hear it from my little son, Wyatt, as we round out the show. But thank you so much. Please share the show. Really appreciate you guys being here. Hopefully this is helpful. Have a great week and I'll see you guys on Friday. Happy holidays. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.